Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. Before you go and try to engage with the world out there on questions of religious liberty, if you're going to make an argument for pluralism, you need to start with uh, showing it in, in our own church. And this is why the race question is just so important, because it's not going to work for a bunch of white evangelicals to go out into the world and say we're for pluralism if we can't even demonstrate in our own churches and bodies that we actually care about and work through deep differences and the things that matter. Welcome again to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot. Gabe is off again this week, but we'll hear from him as he leads a very important panel discussion later in the show. Last week, with the start of the Muslim month of Ramadan, we talked about the topic of getting along in spite of our differences. We live in a nation that's increasingly pluralistic, and it's not just around the issue of religion. We're dealing with an increasingly pluralistic nation in the areas of ethnicity, politics, and even just how we understand the nature of humanity, especially around the topic of sexuality. And the rancor around such issues has become increasingly hostile. We want to return again to the topic of pluralism this week on Q Ideas. You heard at the start of the show from John Anazu. John is a professor of law and religion and professor of political science at Washington University in St. Louis. He focuses on the First Amendment freedoms of speech, assembly, and religion, and related questions of legal and political theory. As a Christian, as well as an expert on the First Amendment, he has a unique perspective on many of the current issues that are seemingly tearing our nation apart. In 2016, he wrote the book called Confident Pluralism in an effort to address many of these matters. And he joined us three years ago at the annual Q Conference. Let's listen in. Shut your pie hole. The words appeared in my email inbox moments after I published an article following the shooting death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. I had argued that all of us bore some shared responsibility for the broader racial and class challenges that Ferguson highlighted, and Dave from Chicago had written to share his thoughts with me. (laughs) It wasn't the only time I heard from Dave, and he's not alone. One need only read the news for a few minutes to see the anger and discord across our society about many issues, race, politics, religion, and class. We are fractured over many issues and many labels. All of this raises a question made famous by Rodney King, the victim of a brutal police beating 25 years ago that led to race riots in Los Angeles. And in the midst of those riots on national television, King asked, can we all get along? Well, I believe, and I want to suggest to you that we can get along that we can survive and even thrive across our deep differences 
through what I call confident pluralism. Instead of the elusive goal of unity, confident pluralism suggests a more modest possibility that we can live together in spite of our deep differences. To do so, we must take both confidence and pluralism seriously. Confidence without pluralism misses the reality of politics. It suppresses difference, sometimes violently. Pluralism without confidence misses the reality of people. It ignores or trivializes difference for the sake of feigned agreement and false unity. Confident pluralism allows genuine difference to coexist without suppressing or minimizing our firmly held convictions. We can embrace pluralism because we are confident in our own beliefs. Confident pluralism has both a legal and a personal dimension, and the two are interrelated. The inclination to shut down a certain viewpoint begins with personal antipathy, but it ends with legal prohibition. A refusal to extend the protection of the laws to those who disagree with us and ultimately an effort to turn the laws against them. Now, as a law professor, I could spend nine hours talking about the legal dimensions and the laws we need to protect dissent and difference, but most of us live our lives outside the pages of legal opinions, and so I'd instead like to focus on the personal dimension, the role that you and I have in forming the habits and practices that might make confident pluralism possible. We confront two huge obstacles in pursuing these goals. The first is that we are too quick to dismiss or insult those with other viewpoints. In honor of my email correspondent, Chicago Dave, let's call this the Dave Principle. (laughs) The Dave Principle was alive and well, but we confront an equally pernicious problem in the opposite direction. Some of us self-select out of everything we don't want to hear. We surround ourselves with people who agree with us. Our opinions become self-reinforcing because they go unchallenged. It's how my own writing would look if I only shared drafts with my mom, who thinks everything I write is gold. (laughs) Here's the point. Many people only listen to views with which they already agree. Let's call this the Sandy Principle in honor of my mom. Much of our country is governed by either the Dave Principle or the Sandy Principle. We encounter dismissive or insulting voices, or we confine ourselves to uncritical and self-reinforcing ones. We see the Dave Principle in social media, bumper stickers, and coffee mugs. It unfolds in what Thomas Friedman has aptly called a vicious cycle of moral outrage being met with equal outrage. We see the Sandy Principle in our cities, our neighborhoods, and our schools. It even, even shows up in where we eat and shop. And we have cultural symbols for these divides, red states and blue states, Fox News and MSNBC, Whole Foods and Chick-fil-A. Instead of shutting out or shutting down those with whom we disagree, confident pluralism suggests that we find space for meaningful difference and for the opportunity for persuasion. In doing so, we can be guided by three principles, tolerance, humility, and patience. Tolerance recognizes that people are, for the most part, free to pursue their own beliefs and practices, even those that we find morally objectionable. That's easier said than done. 
As one philosopher has observed, the basic difficulty with tolerance is that it's needed only for the intolerable. But tolerance does not require embracing all beliefs as good or right. Instead of an anything-goes, happy-go-lucky kind of tolerance, we can embrace a practical enduring for the sake of coexistence. That does not impose the fiction that all ideas are equally valid or morally harmless. It does mean respecting people, aiming for fair discussion, and making space to differ about serious matters. The second guiding principle is humility, which recognizes that others will find our beliefs and practices objectionable, and also that we can't always prove why we are right and they are wrong. Indeed, some of our most important beliefs stem from contested premises that others don't share. That is one reason why all of us, whether religious or not, live and act on a kind of faith. But recognizing limits to what we can, pr- we can prove does not prevent us from holding to what is ultimately true. For this reason, humility should not be mistaken as relativism. Our beliefs can be true, and we can hold them confidently even when others reject them. The third guiding principle is patience. Patience encourages efforts to listen, to understand, and perhaps even to empathize. And in doing so, we need not accept or affirm. In fact, patient listening might lead us to realize, even more so, the harm or error of an opposing viewpoint. But we can at least assume a posture that moves beyond dismissing others before we even hear what they have to say. Confident pluralism imagines the bridges that we can build across difference. This bridge building may not overcome ideological difference. We are unlikely to find agreement over all the many issues that divide us. But we can begin to bridge relational difference. That begins with ordinary acts, much like the ones we've experienced this week, sharing meals, sharing common experiences, or even just having a conversation. We can come to know each other as human beings, and we can work toward finding common ground. So what might confident pluralism look like for the people in this room? We could start by thinking about how we engage with difficult questions of race and justice. Contrary to the advice of Chicago Dave, that doesn't mean moving to Ferguson, but it does mean leaving our echo chambers and extending more grace to those who see and experience life differently. It means engaging in partnerships that close relational distance. Confident pluralism allows us to seek common ground even if we can't agree on a common good. Finding common ground does not mean endorsing every goal or every value of the people to whom we draw near, but it does mean drawing near. We can choose to resist both the Dave principle and the Sandy principle. We can model confident pluralism in our engagement with others. And many of us in this room can embrace pluralism precisely because our confidence lies elsewhere. We can pursue tolerance, humility, and patience because we ground our lives in faith, hope, and love. Thank you. That was John Anazu on the topic of confident pluralism. Thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons this weekend. This is the second week we're talking about pluralism. 
Now, last week, we heard from author and social critic Oz Guinness. In his talk, he made an important observation. One of the deepest issues that's coming up again and again, how do we live with our deepest differences? And we have to say that we who are followers of Jesus enter this discussion in a mixed light. We are, and there's no question, the pioneers of freedom of conscience and religious freedom. From Tertullian and Lactantius right down through Roger Williams and William Penn and many of the greatest heroes of this issue, they were followers of Jesus. At the same time, particularly because of the medieval era, we have been some of the perpetrators of the worst evils against freedom of conscience. It is interesting. The ideas of tolerance, pluralism, and especially freedom of conscience are decidedly Christian ideas. They are ideals that have a long history in Christian thought. But as Oz pointed out, they were ideals that were not always lived up to. He mentioned the Middle Ages, and he went on to talk about the Inquisition. But that was not the only time frame where we failed to live up to our ideals. At the 2016 conference, Gabe sat down again with John Anazu, plus longtime friend Greg Thompson, who directs the New City Commons out of Virginia, and Michelle Higgins from the group Faith for Justice in St. Louis. It was an honest discussion that if we as Christians are going to seek a world of pluralism, we need to live that pluralism out in our congregations and lives. John, I'd just like to come back to kind of tie all this together, why we're having this conversation, but this is something you care a lot about as it relates to pluralism. Would you just describe how this conversation relates so specifically to our vision for pluralism? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of, I I do a lot of talks to uh, churches and, and Christian groups and ministries, and there's a lot of concern about what pluralism is in our society and the need to just counter lots of differing viewpoints. And there are some real challenges. I, I, a lot of my own work is on the issue of religious freedom and religious liberty. And I'm in a lot of meetings with people who are working seriously on policy questions and these sorts of things. Uh, but I usually tell them, before you go and try to engage with the world out there on questions of religious liberty, if you're going to make an argument for pluralism, you need to start with uh, showing it in, in our own church. And this is why the race question is just so important. Because it's not going to work for a bunch of white evangelicals to go out into the world and say we're for pluralism if we can't even demonstrate in our own churches and bodies that we actually care about and work through deep differences and the things that matter. And so when you talk to a, a white congregation and often the issue comes up, you know, these, these current cultural challenges around issues of sexuality are the most important things on our mind. Uh, if you talk to the black church down the street, that's usually not going to come up because it's things like education and housing and uh, law enforcement and, and violence. Uh, and there's a real need for dialogue first around those kinds of questions. Yeah, that's good. Um, Michelle, one of the things we, uh, you know, we've talked about and one of the questions we were asking with this discussion is specifically about the Black Lives Matter movement, which I think um, we have a, actually, let's show the slide we have. We ask all of you what you thought about and whether you were supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement as you understood it. 40% said yes. 24% said no, 36% said undecided. Would you just 
help address like why this movement matters to you and why we should care about it? Yeah, there's a very simple explanation at the heart of it, and I would encourage you if I could just plug an article really quickly, The Common Misconceptions of the Black Lives Matter Movement. It was written by those who founded blacklivesmatter.com, and they've uh, outlined a number of misconceptions, so it should be very helpful. One of the reasons this movement is important to me is that it cries out for a more complete pro-life agenda. It actually cries out for black lives to matter despite the fact that victims are not always innocent. Isn't that something? We actually see people who have committed crime and we see people who are innocent as neither of them worthy of execution on the street. And there are no other movements currently in the church that are doing that. And so Black Lives Matter is actually a continuation of the civil rights movement because we know the civil rights struggle hasn't gone anywhere. It really hasn't. And the only thing that disappeared was media attention from the 60s. So our understanding is that Black Lives Matter is crying out that brown and black bodies are being attacked. They're being treated with bias. There is an implicit bias that says, if I go to a hospital at the same time a white woman goes to a hospital, she will receive better care than me for no other reason than the fact that I'm black. And so here we actually have to look across a spectrum of the way that we deal with things in our country. And yes, it was brought about by neighbors killing neighbors, police killing men and women. But the truth is, Black Lives Matter is for every aspect of how we live. It's important to me because the church is a meta movement. And the church should be able to house movements for better immigration, for native lives, and for queer lives. And so Black Lives Matter is just as important as these other movements. And I stand with it because I accept my limitations. I can't do everything. And I accept it because it's heavily impacted our church community. And the reason that I'm able to work with it without any burden on my conscience is because the essential of what it's crying out for is that we would dignify people simply because they are human and not because we force them to prove themselves by other things. Greg, we've gotten several questions that I think you can just speak to from your experience from the audience. Um, You're a pastor in Virginia. Probably, I don't, I haven't been to your church, but I'd imagine you have a lot of white people in your congregation. Um, And yet you have studied um, Martin Luther King's life. You've written about this. this, is something you care so much about. How would you help, let's say specifically, white leaders in this room address this with the people that they're leading? How can they responsibly help people wake up to the challenge that we have in America and, and to wake up to maybe their own participation in it, their own implicit racial bias? And, and, and like, because some people get shut out of this. You know, they, hear, they might hear Michelle speak and they go, I'm just going to ignore this longer because it, it's too painful for me to like look, at, look in the mirror and see how I'm contributing. But I know you're, you're saying we've got to look at this. You can't look away. How do you do that? Uh, well, I, I want to answer this without assuming that what I'm doing is exemplary um, and, or adequate in any way. Um, I'm from South Carolina. Both my great-grandfather and my grandfather were in the Klan. And um, part of the work of, of coming out of that space... Um, has been the very painful recognition that I really didn't understand myself. I didn't really understand um, my neighbors. I didn't really know anything about what this uh, about African American life or history, and certainly intellectual history. And at some point, 
I realized that what I needed to do was to apprentice myself to the black intellectual tradition, um, broadly conceived, and to the black church. And so when I did my PhD, uh, I devoted myself to the work of understanding King, but trying to situate King in a larger intellectual history that I didn't understand. And because remember, one of the features of segregation was not simply to, it was, it was not fundamentally about hating black people, it was about rendering them invisible. And as a result, I just didn't know. And I think a lot of you don't know. White Christians know more about the church in Iran than they do about the black church around the corner. And that, thank you for the snap, and that is a, uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> that is a fact. And you have to apprentice yourself to the black intellectual tradition, to the theological tradition. You have to find these things. And then if you're a leader in a community, you have to begin to teach these things. I mean, I've been teaching a Sunday school class on the, on the history of the black church in America. Uh, I've been going to black churches and bringing my family in saying, there's a whole part of Jesus' body that I didn't know anything about, and I have to repent of that and give myself to the work of learning and seeing and then adoring the black community. Thank you. Can Thank I have you one yeah. thought here, too? Just, just a sort of a comment on the nature of the conversation based on the number of people in this room, I'm sure there are people who have heard something like white supremacy described, describing the current situation before, and some of you may not have. And how you enter a conversation, you may feel like you've been hit with a tidal wave, or maybe you're thinking, I've heard this before. And so part of, I think, the challenge for any group like this and our, our churches back home is to say, how do we engage with people who are coming at this conversation from lots of different uh, backgrounds? And one response that we can take as Christians is just to say, Tell me more about that. Let's keep talking. Let's keep engaging. If I felt offended or weirded out or didn't understand, ask the follow-on question instead of shutting down and saying, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And I think too much when we hear these conversations, there's, there's a lot, and even in the church, there's a lot of, I'm not going to listen anymore. And that doesn't seem like the gospel response. Yeah. John, just to follow up on that, uh, um, another person here just asked the question uh, related to tolerance. You, you mentioned this in your talk, but how do we know when we've crossed the line and we shouldn't tolerate something? Like, is there ever a line? Or, or is tolerance something we should, we should tolerate everything? No, I, I, I'm, I think there are all kinds of lines that we, we need to draw at some point. We've got to do it in conversation and in, in community. I don't think we should rely on ourselves to do that. Uh, I, I do think, too, though, thinking about what some of Michelle was saying earlier, we as Christians ought to take a lot more risks, especially about just who we're around. So engaging in certain activities, if you're out on the streets and you're not going to engage in violence as a Christian, right? That's not who we are. But, but standing near people and coming near, uh, we, that's what Jesus did, right? He was surrounded by a lot of people who were, uh, raised a lot of questions from those in the world. And, and we need to do more of that too. Yeah. Michelle, uh, a couple people, kind of a similar theme, asking about how the Black Lives Matter movement or advocacy groups in the black community, um, how, how can those movements go forward and not create more bitterness towards the white community if the white community is saying, hey, we want, let's, let's do this, but then they, you know, do you have the same conversations amongst the black community when you're having a conversation about how do we start working together? And, and are, are you having to overcome some things within, this com- within your community to, to try to address this? That's an interesting question. I love that people are thinking about that. Yeah, there's always some aspect of knowing that reconciliation is a risk and reconciliation comes at a cost for each of us, right? But the surprising thing is we don't actually have to converse as much and multiple minority groups could 
say the same, right? We don't converse as much about don't forget that you have to put away your anger and don't forget you have to talk a certain way because we're already culturally bilingual. And so what we're asking is we wonder if people could see black rage as not white murder. We wonder if people could perceive that our anger doesn't mean you ought to die. And as we wonder that, the sadness more than bitterness The sadness comes from the answer, no, black rage is still punishable by death. And even those who wouldn't want to kill you are still terrified that you're going to kill them first. So in our conversations, we are asking, how can we refuse to compromise on how frustrated and upset we are and still tell our white friends, show up, you can come in, you can come right on in, but know that a huge part of my truth telling and yours is going to be and expressions of frustration and anger that are not even against your worth and your value and your worthiness to be in our space. So it actually only takes, and this is the thing I love about what John just said, it takes more proximity and the practice of proximity in order for us to really begin to absorb that. But yeah, it's, it is a good thing. It's a good question. Thank you all for being with us. I know we could spend all day having this conversation. It's that important. But thank you for helping everybody just kind of get to peek in and to know where this conversation can go. Um, And so thank you all for being with us. Let's thank our guests. A lot to think about there. That was Gabe talking with John Anazu, Greg Thompson, and Michelle Higgins. All three have spoken at Q conferences in the past, plus have written articles for Q. Check out all their talks and articles at qideas.org. If you're new to Q Ideas, maybe you heard things you never thought of before in the areas of being more pluralistic in our churches, being faithful to the Bible and to our Lord, but re-examining maybe some of our practices and traditional ways of doing things that foster exclusion to people of different ethnic backgrounds. This is an area we've addressed extensively at Q. Again, learn more at qideas.org. Thanks again for listening to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. On behalf of Gabe, I'm Paul Perot. Have a great week. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.